Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo, and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre, and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips, and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Morel Day is the author of 10 books, including the four-book Claudia Valentine series of crime novels. Her latest book is The Seabed, about a Buddhist monk who leaves his monastery to carry out a fellow monk's dying wish. She has won several awards, including the Ned Kelly Lifetime Achievement 2008 and won international acclaim for her 1997 novel Lambs of God. Other books include Mrs. Cook, The Real and Imagined Life of the Captain's Wife and Shirley's Song. She has also written non-fiction books for writers, Successful Promotion by Writers and How to Write Crime. Morel is also an experienced writing teacher who has taught all over Australia. She has travelled extensively and lived in many different countries, including Italy and France. She even survived a near shipwreck in the Java Sea. She now lives on the New South Wales north coast. Thanks for joining us today, Morel. I'm very pleased to be here. Now, you seem to be able to switch between genres very easily from crime fiction, which you're very well known for, to historical, to non-fiction. Is that difficult? Do you have to get yourself into a different zone or something before you do that? Well, I don't know if I have a, a low boredom threshold, but <laughs> I, I don't like doing the same thing again and again. And I did four crime fiction books and enjoyed very much that experience, but uh, for me, writing is a bit of an adventure, like it's, a, it's like traveling somewhere to some new territory, and that's where I want to go each time with a new book, is to travel to some new territory. And uh, I feel for me it's actually easier than going over ground that I may have visited before, because then I feel I might be tempted to go into familiar patterns and it would be repetitive. So... It does require a huge amount of research, I have Mm. to say, but I'm willing to go there. Now, when did you first know you wanted to be a writer? Was it from when you were very young or is it later in life? Absolutely not when I was young, although I have to say I was always uh, strongly aware of the power of language. When I was about three, for example, my aunt was getting divorced and the word was spoken in such such hushed tones. I felt that it, it it had such power that, you know, if you said it out aloud, something might explode. So I was always aware of the, the, the strength and power of language. Um, but I didn't start writing. I had no conscious desire to do it. Or I, I was even actually writing before I realized that's what was, what was happening. Mm. Again, it had to do with travel. And instead of taking photographs of places, I'd write a little something, or perhaps I felt that, taking photographs was intrusive and I do remember my very first line of what I think is probably writing spring dotting the grass like Claude Monet that was an observation that I must have made somewhere Mm. and it sort of popped out and I thought well I wouldn't actually say that so this Mm. must be writing but it very much started with doodling and little poems and little descriptive pieces. 
And how did you nurture that? How did you develop your writing skills and hone your creativity? Well, I enjoyed this this little exercise, and I think in when you're travelling, it's a way of hearing your own language somehow. Not only I don't mean by that just English, but one's individual language. Mm. So there was certainly that, and once I realised that what I was doing was writing, then I realised I also had to do more than just a little descriptive bits. Mm-hmm. I started with poems, as I said, mm. but I felt that I wanted to go to longer pieces. And in fact, I feel much more comfortable with a novel because it's much more robust beast for me than a poem. Mm. If a poem didn't come almost, you know, straight out, almost born um, in one go... I didn't feel I had the facility to go back and edit it, which I know poets can go over a poem 30, 40 times, Mm. but I felt I could sort of cut and paste and change a novel around because it was robust enough to put up with that. And really, uh, you know, I've been writing for more than 20 years now, and back then there was not a lot of mm, what we might call help for Mm. writers. There Mm. weren't the creative writing courses there weren't, you know, institutions like yours. There weren't workshops. There weren't that sort of thing available to writers. So you just feel your way into it. Mm. It's um, it takes a lot of effort when you don't have those resources. Um, what's your favourite genre to write in, or or do you have a genre that you find more challenging than than others? I probably wouldn't have a favourite genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that the kind of writing well, skills, I suppose, are the same whatever genre you're doing. You mm-hmm. still have to take care of the narrative drive, making sure the characters lift off the page, the attention to detail, the structure and pacing, all those things that you might do in one genre also apply to another. There may be a different focus as to how important the story is in relation to language and imagery, but certainly all those things are the same. Mm. When you were writing crime, how did you research... Uh, the crimes? I probably started with newspapers um, and books, etc., and then started to develop... I mean, you, you need to develop research skills, and, and when I was doing that, it was very much at the beginning, and, and Harry Lavender, for example, The Life and Crimes of Harry Lavender, which was my first... I think I was winging it a lot. Mm-hmm. I think I'm probably, as the novels developed, and you would get letters from readers too, but, you know, this is not right or that's not right. Mm-hmm. I became far more precise with the detail in the crime research. But I, I obviously didn't go out and murder someone myself. But you read <laughs> court reports and I visited the morgue, uh, rang people, you know, poisons experts, forensic detail, all that kind of thing. Mm. And for a writer, I find that research out in the world far more enjoyable than the internet, for example, because Mm. there's so much time you spend by yourself. It's great to get out there. Um, And of course, there's location research too. That's extremely important with crime fiction because location is always such, there's always such a strong sense of place in crime fiction. When you research crime, you obviously come across some fairly unusual and some quite dark and disturbing things. Was that something that fascinated you throughout your life or is that something that was a necessary part of, of your, your fiction writing? 
more a necessary part of, I would say. Um, when I first decided to write crime fiction, it was not the crime so much as that sense of place that's depicted in crime fiction, You know, which mm. is what I've just said. I wanted mm. to write a novel about Sydney, and it seemed... Uh, well, two things. I wanted to write a, a novel about Sydney, and I wanted to practice writing plot because, as I said, most of my experience had been with poetry. And it seemed that a crime novel would kill these two birds with one stone. It's obviously plot strong, mm. and uh, you know it has a, a has a good sense of place. So that was the motivation in in doing it. It wasn't necessarily uh, an interest in crime, but mm. I mean that develops in a sense. You sort of wonder about people's motivations and what's actually going on inside them because. Criminals uh, are human, like all of us, and you just wonder what it takes to step over that edge. I was quite interested in, I have to say, that a particular crime that interested me with those four Claudia Valentine mysteries mm. was the one depicted in the case of the Chinese boxes, which was based on a real crime that occurred in Chinatown in Sydney, um, where the criminals spent about two days inside the bank mm. and they um, took safety deposit boxes in the end. But it was quite a well-executed crime and the sort of I, I was able to see a lot of police evidence of that particular crime. They were smart enough to uh, have done it on the eve of the bicentenary when there were lots of fireworks going mm. off and people weren't paying particular attention to um, you know, a few extra noises, etc. Mm. And as far as I know, they still have never been found. So they they were uh, smart enough to not brag about it too much afterwards mm. either. Um, so tell us about your new book, The Seabed, which is about a Buddhist monk and his journey away from the monastery. How did this book come about? Well, the book came about, uh, probably there are two main uh prongs to it, to write about the sea, mm -hmm. but not necessarily the sea that you, you get from the, the view from the beach, but submersion in the sea, what it, likes to, what, what it felt like to be submersed in seawater. Um, I started doing some snorkeling and, and I just was absolutely fascinated with life below the surface. One, that, that fish, etc., they, they seem to just swim with you, they're not. They don't seem to um, swim away from you so much as when you're thrashing about on the surface swimming. Mm. And also, there's that very feeling of fluidity that you have in water. It's somehow you're buffeted by the water, and you don't feel the pull of gravity so much. So I, that was definitely one thing. And the other thing was, again, to look for uh, a different world. As I said, you know, all my books are different. And mm. I'd been to Japan on a a promotional tour with Shane Maloney and Peter Doyle, two fellow crime writers, was for translation of our uh, our crime books into Japanese, mm. and it was a highly organised ten days there. And uh, it fascinated me, and what particularly fascinate, fascinated me, I suppose, was that every minute of our day was organised, and I only caught brief glimpses of what this country might be. So it seemed that. Um, setting a novel there by the sea would have been a good idea. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I think I'd always known about 
the ama, that's a Japanese word for the traditional women divers of Japan. Right. And it thought, that's it. And also, too, what really uh, gave the thing some urgency was that I'm, I met a Japanese woman here in Australia who said, when I told her I was thinking of doing that, she said, oh, I didn't think there were any still left. And when I started to do research into it, I realized that their numbers were diminishing. Mm. And so there, were, there was that sense of urgency to go there before they disappeared completely. Mm, fascinating. Um, is that how your ideas come about? Something that just sort of piques your interest and then you want to explore it? Or is that, is that how, how it works for you? More or less, yeah. It, it, it's not even something you're particularly looking for. It mm. comes to you. And so... You, you need to sit with it for a while. Uh, that could take, you know, months or even years. Mm. And it's often, as I described with the seabed, it's often two things that come and you think, is there enough for a story here? Is there enough, you know, to go the length of a novel? And also, I don't, I tend not to act on it straight away. I let the, the ideas um, sit there. I do a bit of, of sort of exploration in my head before I actually do any research. I look at possibilities because you have to live with a novel for so long. Mm. You want to know that you're going to be interested by it to, oh, yes. you know, for that the time it takes to see you through it. So when you are in that writing process, can you tell us about your typical writing day then? Do you have a routine or a ritual at all when you're writing a novel? Uh, it depends what draft I'm up to, and I'll just briefly say that I do three drafts, and the first draft is very loose and rough, and you know I never read the material back because I know it's bad. <laughs> the second draft is when I'm looking at what I'd call the macro units, big structural levels, you know, like when you give where, when and where do you give certain information? Are the characters consistent? Um, you know, pacing, or is this, have we had enough of this thing and do we need to go on to something else? And the third level is where I really pay attention to the words on the page. Is this the right image, etc.? cetera? Mm. Um, really make those words work for you. But on a daily, a practical basis, by the second and third draft, I'm obsessed <laughs> and there's no discipline problem whatsoever. <laughs> I get up and I want to do it. In fact, it's in my mind 24 hours a wow. day there. And you kind of somewhat removed from the real world. You hope you're not mm. burning the house down because you've left <laughs> something on the stove, whatever. Mm. But in the first draft, um, that's that's the one that I find excruciating, uh, that <laughs> tyranny of the blank page. And I try and aim for a thousand words a day. Mm. And, it, you know, real life intervenes and you can't actually often work every day, can't mm. actually write every day. But um, And I can start that as soon as I get up or I can procrastinate and clean the <laughs> fridge and do all of that as we all writers know so well mm-hmm. and think, my God, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I better start doing something. So I try and, and aim for a word uh, goal. And I do my first draft longhand. Oh, wow. Out of the now, out of the now seven novels that I've written, I did two straight on the computer and found it quite... Um, dissatisfying mm. process and I wonder why this this was uh, and I think it's because well there's a couple of things I work in big uh, foolscap books hardcover so I can't they're fairly portable 
you know, I can go outside and, mm. and, and, and write on them because the cover's hard enough to lean on. Um, I think it's that uh, you're much closer to the material when you're handwriting. Mm. The idea occurs in your brain. It sort of comes down your arm, out of the pen, and you're actually touching the page. You're touching the place where the word's coming out. And it's all a lot more organic and tactile. Mm. And I think the wavy movement of handwriting comes from a different part of your brain than the kind of on-off digital movement when you're tapping keys. Mm, mm. Um, I think I, I love the computer for subsequent drafts because I it, because it's as if you're doing this tapping and the words coming up on a screen somewhat dissociated from you, and that allows me to better edit the material because it it has. Uh, it, it, it's, it's more objective. It's, it, I didn't actually put those words on the screen. They came there through the machine. <laughs> so that's, that's the sort of difference it is for me. And I have to say, too, in addition with this novel, because it's got three main characters, this novel is the seabed. It has the Buddhist monk, as you pointed out, and it has uh, Chicken and Lily, two women divers who are sisters, Chicken is the one who's remained in the community and Lily is the one who, for her own reasons that we end up discovering through the course of the novel, left and took up a city life. And during the first draft, I had different colour pens for them as well. The monk was green, uh, Chicken was just a regular black pen and Lily's pen was purple. So that allowed me to sort of um, somehow uh, go from one narrative point of view to another Plus, it was easy to see on the page uh, how much how much space each of them was getting. So that if I thought, oh, I've probably done quite a lot of the monk now, perhaps I better switch over to the other character's point of view. Mm. And also, you are a very experienced writing teacher. Why do you do that as well? Well, I love I love doing that, uh, and I'm very uh, pleased to do it, and still feel enthusiastic about it after a number of years and I have to say probably that's what I always wanted to do when I was a kid I wanted to be a teacher and that's in mm. fact what I did do for um, you know some years after leaving school primary school teaching mm. and university teaching and to teach something that you love like writing uh, you know is just a joy I love the mentoring process I mean I do teach workshops etc mm. but that one-on-one -on -one mentoring when you actually go into the world of somebody else's novel and a novel that is still at its potential and not uh, finished, to go into that world and to sort of see what what it might be um, and to see what, what the, the, the uh, positive aspects of that novel, the distinctions, the distinctive voice of it, and also to sort of think, well, what's not working and how can you make it better? But And of course, it's not up to me to make it better. It's up to sort of uh, the writer to sort of take on board suggestions. And mm. it's quite a, a remarkable process, I think, when that happens, to see what a writer actually does with suggestions. Mm, mm. What, for you personally, has been one of the hardest parts of the, your writing process? Well, it is that first draft. It's making up the story, I think, mm. because... What I loved about writing in the first place was that doodling aspect of mm. it. Um, the feeling that you get, you might get with morning pages, for example, when mm. you're just free writing. 
and nobody's going to see it, so it doesn't have to have a structure, it doesn't have to have a particular shape. But that onward-going story structure for me um, has always been difficult and I have to say it hasn't got any better over the course of the book. So after that difficult first draft, you say you become obsessed with the second and third draft. Are you very exhausted by the end? Is it? And what is the feeling like at the end? Is it relief or exhaustion? Well, when the whole book is finished. Yeah, when you know you're done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, um, it's, I mean, you... you you're sort of at the, the top of your brain all the time. There's this great adrenaline charge when you're mm. obsessed and you sort of you know what you have to do and, and everything is racing, which is fantastic, even in a fairly contemplative novel like The Seabed. But I did feel with that um, that I felt like I'd given birth to an elephant. <laughs> and I felt like I'd just have to... Because uh, it took four years. It's the longest... It's a book that's taken me the longest to write. Mm. Yes, I just felt... Uh, oh, I just have to lie here for a while and recuperate. It's a great feeling, though, because it, it must be the feeling that someone who's run a marathon has at the end. You're exhilarated that you've hit the finishing line, but then you just have to lie around for a while as well. <laughs> but fortunately, with a marathon, they're only living with it for 42 kilometres. When you live with a book for four years, do you feel slightly bereft at the end that this thing's gone now? Well, yeah, I, I think you do. Um, it's it's uh, You have this big hole, which I suppose is why the resting period, you've got to rest and get over it. And you've also got to rest and, and wait till your well fills up again, if you like, you know, your well of ideas. But mm. um, the thing is, it, it's interesting because it, it's a sort of gradual process. There is that defined special moment when you hand it over to the publisher, mm. when you hand the manuscript over. But... There's inevitably other stuff to do with it, do with it, with the book. It, it gets edited, etc. So it comes back to you, but it's gone to other hands mm. in a sense, and it's being looked after by others as well. And there's that wonderful process too when the manuscript uh, is transformed in a book with mm. a cover and mm. beautiful design in, inside, etc., etc. Mm. And I suppose that's the moment when you feel it can live on its own, and that may be akin to the day when your child first goes to school mm. you feel okay you know it, it can be it can have that time at school away from you know the parent it mm. can be looked after by others and it can manage on its own to some extent too what a great description and what would your advice be for aspiring authors out there who are listening to this and thinking you know I'd really like to have a go at that one day I'd really like to finally get that discipline what would your advice be to them Sit down and do it. <laughs> I know that's very trite to say, but stay seated. Stay seated for as long as it takes. And I think what you need to do is to prioritize it because I know myself too, other things get, uh, you know, you will willingly do other things. I mean, it's not just procrastination. If somebody asks you to write a particular piece or review a book or do a workshop or whatever, you will always say yes to it and think, oh, well, there'll be another day to write the book. Mm. But the writer is the only person who can write this book. Everybody, there, are, everything else in your life can be taken care of by others in a sense. Even if you die, let's go to an extreme, other people can look after your family, but no one can write this book. And so you need to prioritize it and, and see that it's important and uh, sit down and give it the time for as long as it takes. And it might take, as I said, four years. Mm. 
I love it. Sit down and just do it. It makes perfect sense. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Morelle. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.